HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we bring you stories about the coldest, darkest season. We start in a California vineyard. It's cold, but it's wet, and things are still alive. There's a lot of life in this soil. We explore two frontiers of cocktail culture, luxury ice and the rise of non-alcoholic drinks. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. And we investigate the risks facing New York City delivery workers during the harsh winter. In the wintertime, after two hours of biking, it's quite easy, actually, for the bikes to sting upside down or slips or slide. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, for some food for thought to sustain you through the dead of winter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, Darren speaks to the art of plating. We talk about the start of the site and how plating has taken visuals of food to another level and how you can add a little beauty to your plate. And then live in studio, we have Abe Seaforth on his new record, Solstice One, and how we can return to nature through abstract, improvisational, electronic music. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Dara Bresnitz. We are here with Maria Wynn, founder and editor-in-chief of The Art of Plating. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much. So you got started in graphic design and web design, I would say earlier than most people do. You got started at the ripe old age of 12. Yes. Um, what drew you to that instead of drawing on paper or the more classic, you know, teen art endeavors? I think what drew me to that is, um, I can't, well, one, I can't draw. Sure. <laughs> sure. But I always had a really good eye for design. And I think what really drives me is like curiosity. And so at the time when I started getting into graphic design was when the internet just started like, you know, exploding. And mm -hmm. there was this concept of a website, which I was like, what is a website? What year is this? This was maybe... I don't know, 2002, 2011. Okay, okay. So very early on. Very early on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was like, what is a website? What is that? Um, and then, you know, one of my, my cousins, she's a little bit older than me. She's like, oh, this is a website. <laughs> and then there's like these websites where you could code it yourself and design. So I started playing around with paint because that's what everybody does <laughs> when sure. you have a computer, right? Sure. Yeah. It's always nice to have that older cousin who's like, this is cool. And you're yeah, like, yeah. all right, this is cool. So then I was like, okay, well, I want to, I want to make a website. Yeah. And I opened up paint and... I designed my first website and I got into like coding at a really early age. So the backend stuff and things like that, beyond just like here's some clip art up on a web page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got into like learning how to do HTML and CSS. That's awesome. Getting real nerdy with it. No, that's great. I, that stuff is still completely foreign to me. I tried, I had a computer science class that I did not do very well in. Yeah. Um, and was food there early on as well? Or, you know, was it mostly design at the beginning? It was mostly design at the beginning. Um, and did you, I know you went off to college and things like that, but with design, you're like, this is what I'm doing. You're drawn to the, not just the back end, but the coding, the beauty part of the design. Um, did you go to study it in college? Yeah, I did. So, you know, after that, I started getting into like just designing and I learned how to do Photoshop and mm. it was just something that I was focusing on and kind of building my skill set. And I knew right away that was something I wanted to do. I went to school for it. I went to college for it. Then I got out of college and, you know, right away got into a design job. And when did you feel that you had an eye? Like, you know, they talk about having the eye and like having an eye for this and eye for design. But like, when did you start to feel that, that confidence that you had something unique and you saw things in a way that no one else could? Probably at 12, 13, Beautiful. like really early on. That is very awesome to have that right out of the bat. Yeah. Um, and so after college, you came to LA. Mm -hmm. um, what brought you to LA? Because design in the late aughts and things like that. LA was burgeoning and it had a scene, but New York seemed like a maybe a stronger beacon. What brought you out here? I moved to LA because one, I'm attached to my car. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and I don't do the snow. And I had the choice between LA or New York. Sure. And I just decided on a whim, you know, I'm gonna move to LA. And um, then I didn't even have a job at the time. I didn't even know anybody here. I just figured I'll move to LA. Sight unseen? Yeah. Had you been here before? No, I hadn't. And I what, just had like a, a gut feeling that I was like, LA seems pretty cool. I want to move to LA. <laughs> what year was this? This was 2011. Okay. Um, and so what were those early days like moving out to LA, being a designer? When did food start entering um, your world and your sphere? Probably, you know, I always love food. Mom so cook, grandma mom cook. Cooked. My family's Vietnamese, so food's like a big important Ooh. thing to us. And, you know, food is always really important. And all of our family interactions is always around the meal, like around the table. Um, so, you know, that was always really important to me. But I, so funny thing is I grew up in Florida, okay. which is like, I shouldn't even be saying that. <laughs> no, you can say that. <laughs> no, but I grew up in Florida and... Back, th back there at that time period too, like food, like really good food didn't really exist. I mean, there's a lot of chain restaurants. No. There's not a lot of culture. And my parents, they grew up in a, they worked all the time. Yeah. So I grew up in a place where I didn't get to travel and get to experience different cultures. So even though that was something I always wanted, I never really got to experience that. But then moving to LA, which is so completely different there's like a plethora of culture and food sure. and you know moving out here that's what i wanted to explore 
And it's amazing because now it's sort of swung back the other way where it's like, what are the subcultures in the towns? It seems like they have no subcultures. And it's like, you know, immigrant food or like mom's cooking or like this small like barbecue shack. But back then it was like, unless you lived in these specific cities in 2011, your food was Applebee's. Yeah. Um, so you already, you've always enjoyed food. Right. Um, but, you know, Vietnamese food, especially home-cooked Vietnamese food, is definitely a different aesthetic than what you see on the art of plating. Because sure. it's a little bit more familiar. It's a little bit, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful in a way that uh, maybe folk art mm-hmm. is beautiful, not in, like, the Grand Impressionist Masters. Yeah. Um, but you're doing design work, and when did you start to feel that something like you're seeing a hole in the design community that you're like I think I can fill this Mm -hmm. I think it was less about seeing a hole in the design community as much as it was a hole in the food community interesting yeah go on and I say that because at that time okay so I had this client right who he sucked all the creativity out of me Mm, don't you love them (laughs) you're like you're like I've given you everything he's like I need just a little more. No, it was more of like, you suck. <laughs> Start over. <laughs> so it was more of like that. It was it was tough. And being the fact that I always love food, I was just like, okay, you know, I, I want to get into something different. I want to get into cooking. So one of my first cookbooks that I was running through was Thomas Keller's French Laundry. Just a small, yeah, little, <laughs> easy-to-approach cookbook. And it's an amazing cookbook because I learned so much. Yeah. But every recipe, if you're doing the entire thing, it takes you eight or nine hours. It's a long time because just the base, you're like, oh, it's it's seven ingredients. Oh, wait, there's 12 some recipes. Exactly. You're making a little herb oil for an hour. <laughs> and, that, and that's just barely the recipe, right? So... I would be working through these recipes and at the end of them, my food looked like shit compared to the photos. And I was just thinking... (laughs) I mean, you picked... I mean, (laughs) one of the highest... I mean, that's first off, that's a legendary, beautiful cookbook. Sure. But the food itself is just, you're like, wait, what did I do wrong? Which step of the 600 steps was that? (laughs) But you're looking at it and you go like, I don't feel as good about it or like you feel like something's missing. I feel like I don't feel as good about it. Sure. And it doesn't feel as clean. And I was just more so curious to how he made it so beautiful and what steps did he take to make it that way. Kind of, you know, because everything, even with art, there's there's a little bit of rules or there's a foundation sure. to be built upon. And I just didn't really understand that as somebody cooking at home. Right. And so you start seeing this this opening in food because there's a way to transfer. And now let's remember, this is 2011, 2012. This is not the world we live in now where it's, there's all a ton of YouTube videos, Facebook videos about like the behind the scenes. Exactly. And it wasn't even a topic that anybody was talking no. about. Now you could get videos and there's articles and their websites and obviously Instagram pages. But at that time, it just didn't really exist. And so... I was thinking, if there's no books or magazines or anybody focused on plating, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one with this issue or mm-hmm. I'm not the only one who's interested into it. So I'm, I'm going to try it out on social media. And the first night was 50 followers and the next night was 100. And What were you using? Which social media platform? Instagram. Oh, yeah. All right. I forgot they've been around for that long. Yeah, yeah. You must have been one of the first sort of food-focused design Pages. Sure. Now there's so many. But now there's so many, but there's well, we're gonna get to that in a little bit because <laughs> you don't need to talk. You don't want to talk too much about the competitors. But fifty, a hundred, and like were people just gobbling it up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, now it's you know we've grown. We have over seven hundred and sixty thousand followers. But let's go back to those early days. Yeah. What was that like? What pressures did you put upon yourself, or were there pressures that you didn't even feel because it was so new, and you're like. Who cares if anyone sees this because no one might see it at all? I don't, th- I don't know. I don't think that there was really any pressures at all. I mean, I ha- always had like an entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. And so I always knew I wanted to build it into something meaningful. But at the same time, I was an art director too at an agency. So mm. I always kind of have that self-pressure anyways to have sure. perfection. And so everything that I do is always extremely curated and... I tried to make it perfect. Now, were you? did you have a team or was it all just you at the beginning? It was all just me. 
but the great thing was that I was so into it yeah. that I'd wake up at eight o'clock in the morning and that was the first thing that I would do and then lunch and dinner and before I went to sleep. Now, how did you make that jump from not feeling like you're measuring up to Thomas Keller, which is totally fine. I feel like I've never measured up to Thomas <laughs> Keller ever. But how did you make that design jump? Um, and what was your approach to making something where you're like, okay, this is good enough for me to say, this is art. I've hit the design aesthetic of this plate. I'm going to put it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You know, but is in the beginning too, it was less about actually creating the beautiful plates as much as, as it is showcasing. Mm. So we right now too, we work with tons of chefs and restaurants yes, and all over the world. And, you know, and in the beginning, it was more so about building a community and giving people a space to share their work. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. When we come back, we're going to talk about the launch of the website and then your growth, some of the awards. You dip into experiential and how you pick the perfect plate. We have a song from the archives on Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I am one half year. Sorry. <clears throat> Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm here with Maria Wynn, founder and editor in chief of the Art of Plating, whose Instagram. If you ever just want to bliss out over beautiful plates of food, just put on the Four Seasons. Start scrolling down. But before you built, which is like it seems like an endless page of like craftly curated photos. You had to launch, right? And so you have this Instagram page. How did you make that leap from having this be your side hustle to your main hustle? How did you get started in the the dot com? 
So probably a year into you know building the Instagram page, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, there needs to be a, something a little bit more, with more substance. So for the entire year after building um, the Instagram page, we launched the website, mm-hmm. and that was a place to do interviews and showcase videos and kind of pulling in all of our inspirations into one one website. And did you feel that it was a different approach now that you weren't dealing with just a photo and a caption, um, bringing more of like an editorial lens to it? Yeah, for sure. Because one of the things that I love about uh, the website and things is that it's storytelling. Um, and how do you tell a story through a plate of food or through a couple of plates of food? What are the stories you want to tell? Mm-hmm. I think what really inspires us as a team and what we do is more so about the creativity of things. So that's kind of like the catalyst of everything that we do is, you know, focusing on what inspires a chef. Because I always think plating is a really big personal expression. Hmm. Every person is so different and so unique and they have their own kind of backstory of why they do the things that they do. You know, we've worked with one chef, Rasmus Kofed from... Uh, granium and what he does is he's inspired by like the forest that he grew up in and so everything is kind of like a little uh, reminds him of his childhood and so like those stories are so unique and I think that's what kind of pushes us is to be able like to tell those stories yeah I mean you must see and get insights into these people through their food that because sometimes chefs are introverts you know, and you meet them and you're like, does he like me? Does she like me? And then they start plating their food in and feeding you. And it's a whole other experience. Um, how are you able to translate that uh, through the work that you do? Mm-hmm. I think I'm pr- I've been pretty lucky that a lot of chefs, they love talking about their work. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so that definitely gives me the upper hand a little bit to be able to ask them questions and kind of dive deep into their personalities and why, you know, they do the things that they do. Now, a lot of the times uh, cooking in the higher and upper echelons are referred to culinary arts um, with the emphasis being on the culinary, but you really emphasize the art part of it. Have you had a hard time convincing people, the public, the art side of it being equally or sometimes even more important than the food on the plate? Yeah, I think that there is a, you know, good mixture of feedback, but for the most part, we've had really, really good mixture because a lot of the things that we showcase is just so beautiful that it's hard not to appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the photos that you see that you get are just like, they're so perfect and sometimes they're like too perfect. Do you ever struggle with that of finding that balance of making it more realistic instead of this, you know, curated, perfect page? A little bit sometimes, but I think because we have everyone on our team has a background or understands culinary, that we try to choose things that are realistic, right? That is edible. Like you know, I hate things, and not because I'm a person that goes out to eat too. I hate things that are overly frivolous, and I work with a lot of chefs, so I have a better understanding of what makes sense and what doesn't. Um, it's not like you know the things that we are putting on there are just the most out of whack thing yeah i mean now that you've been in this now that this is full time how has your uh, curatorial approach shifted over the years especially do you respond to trends is it more just going off that gut that you that eye that you developed when you were 12 how do you pick uh where you shoot where you eat with the stories that you want to tell Mm -hmm. i definitely think it's more of a gut instinct we're always trying to find chefs and people and you know people who are doing things that are different than what you'd normally see because there are trends it's it's hard not for there to be trends it's almost kind of like fashion in a way you know one when an amazing chef is doing something incredible it's hard not to pick up what he's doing and see other a million other people to do it so we try to find you know people who are just doing things a little bit more unique um so the website's up. It's up a couple of years. The awards start coming in for some of the short films you make. Uh, Savor calls you best design blog. When do things start shifting? When do things start solidifying in your mind and around um, the content you're putting out? Being like, oh, this is a real thing. This is a real endeavor. And what we're saying is breaking through, making a point, and being recognized. Mm-hmm. Probably in year two. 
is when just pretty good yeah pretty I mean, good actually early on i always yeah. knew but year two was when i felt that okay we're in a great place and this is when i quit, quit my job too how was that day <laughs> it was awesome how long had you been thinking about it for a whole year oh. <laughs> did you give him two weeks were you, were you nice like i that? gave a month Wow. Uh, yeah. That's very nice. That's very so, nice. Did they know at work about your side hustle? They did. Okay. Yeah. How long? The, it, from the beginning. Because okay. at the time I was an art director and I was so close to everybody. Sure, sure, sure. The company that they all kind of knew. And I think everybody was really proud of me. And, yeah. and even people who are just, you know, my colleagues, they're all really proud that I kind of just left them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, it sounds like you left them with enough time. And sure. at some point they're probably looking at it and they're probably starting to realize like, oh, this is becoming a real thing. She may not be with us mm -hmm. forever. But so you leave and you take that leap and is that when things just took off even more? Like, because you were dead, able to dedicate full time to the company? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think it gave me opportunity to explore um, just like different collaborations and kind of understand what the business of everything was. What do you mean? Just because, you know, I, did, I never came from media. I sure. came from a design background and an agency background. And then I'm starting this brand that never existed before and nobody had an idea of what plating is. So, you know, that first couple years, it was really building a name for ourselves and then trying to understand like, what are we and what is our position in the world? and how are we different than just a regular media website or a blog? And how, how do you find that? How have you come to define yourself? I mean, I definitely define ourselves as more of collaborators and we're a media company, but that doesn't mean that we're just stuck in. We're not, we're definitely not just an Instagram page. I mean, I feel that, you know, we have our website and we're content creators and we're collaborators because we do amazing events and we're hosting different things. But I think it's more so about pushing this envelope and having a mission about plating and that is what we want to like, you know, talk about. Um, getting out in the real world is probably a big part of the freedom you get when you leave the real time hustle for the side hustle and the side hustle becomes a real hustle. And I know that about two years ago, you traveled the world for about 10 months. What made you want to just pack a bag and go? What did you find beneficial just getting out on the road and leaving LA, which had been your home base of where you built this for such a long amount of time? Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny because, well, you know, growing up, I didn't get the chance to travel the world. And I think that was always something inside of me. And I was always hustling and back to back out of school, going into a job and never really taking time off to to explore a little bit. And I think, you know, that was kind of the catalyst. I was like, you know, I'm kind of tired of just being at a desk and I built this amazing thing and I want to go out there and I want to see and learn about plating and I want to visit different restaurants and I want to create content. And so I was just like, okay, I'm gonna close the office <laughs> and travel for an entire year. Now, it seems like a dream, but I'm sure there is a reality to it. And also you wanting to, create stuff while it, it wasn't just a vacation it was you were creating stuff from it um how do you approach uh, a trip like that um for someone who might want to go out into the world themselves like what's the best advice you have for someone who might want to go out on a venture and build their world in something larger mm -hmm. i would say definitely have a game plan mm. you know like I mean, it's great to want to go to Paris for an entire month, but once you get to Paris and then you're not there and you're not prepared and you don't really have a game plan, yeah. people who you want to meet and things that you want to do, it, that could be a struggle. Europeans are planners. Yeah, for sure. Like there is not like, there's not like a drop in. Once you get to the, you know, once you can get through in the email or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so you went with a plan and how did you feel working with uh, the international chef community versus the American community, were they equally as receptive, more receptive? Did they get what you were doing with the art of plating? And was it easier because you had built up such uh, a deep trove of work? It was a lot, it was pretty easy. I mean, I've, I'm actually really grateful and I feel really blessed because we were in a great position at that time too, that every, a lot of people knew what the art of plating was. So it wasn't a struggle for us to get in the door and meet with different people. And in general, I feel that the culinary community is extremely accepting. Yeah, I mean, they're really, if they realize that you're for real, 
and that you respect their work and their time, then the doors will open. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of opening doors, uh, you have shifted into experiential as well. What made you want to go? Now you're beyond the Instagram page. You have the website. What made you want to get into the event world? Which today, I feel like there's a pop-up and a dinner for everything, every night in every city. What were you bringing to the table? I love collaborations and I love the chefs that we work with. And I think it's, it's amazing to be able to see um, beautiful food and all of that. But then it's a completely different thing to be able to experience that in person. And as somebody who loves to go out and dine and have all these experiences, I wanted to bring that to you know people that we know in our network and to guests. And so I think that's kind of what was the catalyst for that. And when you're on site, I mean, obviously you're such an expert at uh, shooting photographs, as I know, because we were at the same mod dinner and I looked at your photographs and I looked at mine and I went, I think we were at two different dinners <laughs> because yours look way better. But when you're at that, like, are you, are you sharing your knowledge? Are you helping people? Like, is it a fun sort of community meetup as well of people who want to, you know, see beautiful art, learn from someone who knows how to shoot food and post their own photos? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm always there and people pick my brains all the time, which I'm totally for. But I think it's just more so like the whole experience of being able to taste the food and see the food and interact with a chef. Because sometimes, you know, if you're lucky, you get to interact with a chef yeah. and sometimes you're, you're not as lucky. So being able to bring an experience is really important. So as you start looking to the future and you have the events and you, you, you've expanded and now you have this international group of chefs what's next how do you keep pushing um how do you differentiate continue to differentiate yourself now that there's a you know 25 dozen other instagram social pages facebook pages, things like that like what's next how do you stay one step ahead mm-hmm. i think what's really important to me is keeping in touch with the community that we've built which is all these amazing chefs and journalists and bloggers and you know kind of this really amazing community all over the world and um, you know next year looking forward I'm trying to figure out ways how we can bring all of those people into one place Ooh. so without giving art up, plating con. <laughs> without giving away too much but you know I think that's something that would be really exciting um, now I want to end on one question because I want to get back to storytelling a little bit. You've told a lot of stories, but is there one story that you've wanted to tell that you have yet to tell that you plan on telling in the next year or so? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, listen, thank you so much. If people want to check out The Art of Plating, where can they go? They can go to on Instagram at theartofplating or theartofplating.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for taking some beautiful photos. Uh, We have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hey, are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Kathy Irway, and I'm the host of Eat Your Words here on HRN. Every week I sit down with food writers to talk about their newest work, from colorful cookbooks to food memoirs to exposés on the food industry. It's all meaty topic for discussion. You can find Eat Your Words wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Solstice One, a series of music centered around events in nature. The winter solstice, the longest night of the year, an ending and a beginning. A moment celebrated by mankind to help us understand our place in the universe. A time to reflect on our connection with nature. Find a moment for these musical passages. Listen, let go, and be. Hey, Steve Firth. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. How's it going? Uh, we heard earlier in the program uh, some tippy toes back from however many years that was. Quite a few years it ago. It was quite a few years. Uh, it's so good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. In the solo form. Yes. In this, you ditched that that dirtbag <laughs> bandmate of yours and said, I'm on my own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, your manifesto is beautiful. Thank you. And I'm really happy that we are getting you so close to the release of this record. Yeah. Um, let, let's start with the solstice for the uninitiated. Uh, what is it and why did you release a record on solstice? Right. Well, the solstice is, uh, well, yeah, that happens on December 21st. And I started thinking about how, um, you know, it's, it's around the holidays. And here we are, uh, you know, gearing up for the holidays and it's Christmas and there's all these things associated to Christmas. And when you think back on it, it's really, you know, Christmas is a Christian appropriation of the sort of pre-Christian pagan celebration of this momentous aligning of the planet and the sun and our rotation um, and, and how it tilts towards the sun and away from the sun. So it's the shortest day of the year um, as our planet is traveling through the cosmos. And why did you decide to put a record out on Solstice? And how far back did you have to start working to meet that deadline? Well, the music had always been brewing. I've been working on this new type of music. Um, and I, I needed to figure out a reason for why should anyone think to listen to abstract instrumental music? What is the purpose of abstract instrumental music? What is the purpose <laughs> of abstract instrumental music? Well, the purpose that I thought was that um, meditation and reflection. Um, and when thinking about the solstice and the holidays, I think about how far removed we are from nature these days. Ever since the advent of electricity, we have started to see the stars less and less. And here we are in the city, and we never see the stars. We see the North Star every now and then. We see the moon every now and then. But we don't really have any connection to what people used to see all but 150 years ago every night in all its glory, you know. Uh, if you've been out, I'm sure you've traveled. Uh, when I was in Utah a couple years ago, actually seeing the Milky Way just blew my mind. And that used to be what all of mankind used to see every night. Do you think it was mind-blowing for them or just like, ugh, the stars? Well, no, I think it was... Or just I, the terror of the night. <laughs> I think it was extremely mind-blowing for them. They, you know, every ancient civilization um, aligned every monument, every building, every city to the relation to the stars. And it was, you know, it's not really until, you know, uh, Christianity or, and also post-industrial revolution where 
then buildings got built based on building code and <laughs> and stuff like that. So it's like our, our connection to nature and and you know us being spaceship Earth has disintegrated. How do you find a connection to nature through electronic music? Well, yeah, there's a bit of the p- paradox because I'm talking down on electronic and technology while using it. So the the hope is that that's the bridge that allows people to connect. Um, that people that you know we live in this technology world and that we're able to f- listen to electronics to help us then get back to nature. And and <clears throat> the music hopefully reflects that. And there's you know there's mathematical aspects to it, um, such as well. Uh, there can be, you know, different, there's, there's numerology, you know, that can be applied. Um, it's a bit arbitrary, I suppose, but like you can apply different types of numbers that represent nature. Obviously math is a way to describe nature. And if you can try and grab some of these numbers, even loosely associated into the composition or the improvisation, then, uh, you know, the, it's a more felt than heard kind of thing. <laughs> are there are there specific numbers that are tied to nature, or are there numbers that you were working with that you used as reference points? Hmm. Um, well, there are <laughs> uh, there are certain numbers. I mean, there's thirteen, eleven, seven. These tend to tend to be these more odd numbers. Six. These t- tend to uh, represent different aspects i'm not i can't really give you any specific things right now but like the it, it is all kind of arbitrary but i think the the intent of attaching to number to something uh still is part of the process in the creation absolutely i mean when forming this you need you need goalposts. yes you need you need guiding lights if you will yes. and it's really interesting to hear mathematics and nature all through the electronic Yes. medium to guide you back to a starry sky. Yeah. Um, from tippy toes to this, uh, you said earlier in the interview that you were creating this new type of music. How has creating these songs evolved for you? Or what is the thought process into actually making it outside of the intangible numbers, nature? What is the actual technical methods that you use to do this? Well, part of it's actually therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I work as a music producer and mix people's music and work on their projects all the time. And this, it's a, it's a lovingly tedious job <laughs> where every decision. That's such a nice way to put it for someone who has to continue to make a living this way. That is such a measured way of saying it. Yeah. I just want to, you and, know, and anyone listening goes, he's not talking about my project. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's everyone else. Not me. <laughs> Abe and I have a thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So to um, part of the process of this music uh, is that it's uh, it has an impermanence about it. It doesn't... I create these things and they can never really be created again. I can't play the songs on the record uh, again. They, you know, one little knob twist or something here creates a whole different set of events and so I create something I recorded it right to tape and then it's done great (laughs) no second guessing no second guessing no editing Uh, the question does beg how do you know when uh, a snippet or a piece that you create is goes from experimental jam to that's one of the handful of representations, the, the current tangible form that I want to be indicative of this project. Yeah, sure. Um, that, uh, it just has to speak to me in a certain way. And you know, there, there is ways to, I mean, I'm creating, trying to, I'm trying to think of song in uh, form, and I'm like, and I might do a couple takes as well once I get a certain thing going and, and get it going and like, oh, that, that had a nice progression to it. Um, and then, you know, it's my years of editing music and, and listening to it every day that I trust my instincts on what I think is good and what's bad. It's like 10 minutes and 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's get back to nature. <laughs> yeah. 
I can't even say what are you going to play for us first. Is there even a, a title, or, or what, do you, what are you going to do for us first? Well, I'm going to start out uh, very meditative. Very meditative. Perfect. Um, All right. Abe Seaforth, Snacky Tunes. Here we go. Amazing. I, even, I mean, what am I supposed to say after that? What's a professional response to me? <laughs> Just awesome. Um, we covered, uh, for anyone let's go back to the archives and listen to the Tippy Toes episode, we covered your work at DFA. Right. Uh, so instead of covering old ground, I want to cover new ground for your synth-laden recording studio <laughs> which anything that leads that way is just like you know jaw dropping like i just want to see how many senses does you do you need to be to be synth laden if i had a diamond laden <laughs> necklace i would say it'd be covered in diamonds right 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 <laughs> it's pretty covered right now we there's actually um there's lots going on in studio world right now there's and it's called transmitter park transmitter park is studio. it at transmitter park in greenpoint it is is a it's a block and a half away it's just Good up enough. the street yeah, yeah. Like yeah. if you had to move your Lyft or Uber, they'd still pick you up down the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That would be fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's lots going on. We uh, There's new partners involved, new people involved, renovations. I was painting the hallways with Morgan last night till about 2 a.m. Morgan. Uh, Morgan Wiley, the yep. tippy toes. He is, he's one of my partners in the studio going forward now. And uh, yeah, I've been renovating and doing all these things. And as we're doing that and like, emptying out closets we find even more synths i mean is it do you have you gone to the level yet where people are just giving you synths yes i am now that's the I, that's I, the tipping point i would say i am i'm probably one of the number one uh foster care uh, uh synth parents at this point i mean considering that like you run in the dfa world how many guys that you know maybe try to start a band in that world and now they're a little bit older they're like look i got two kids 
I don't have any time for this, but like, I just want to make sure it has a good home. Maybe come look at it every once in a while. Yeah, that happens. That happens. That happens. New York is a place, you know, where no one has any room. And uh, as you start to clean out the studio, you realize how many things have been left behind. <laughs> so for building a studio in 2000, when did the studio start? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I think it was the, the first lease was signed in about 2008. Okay. So... 2008 to 2019, technology has changed. What makes a good studio and what advantages do you have now for focusing on synths that mm-hmm. makes you competitive or allows you to work with the artists that you want to work with? Yeah, well, the uh, it, it's, well, it's, I'll break it down a couple things. It's specifically with synths, uh, the world has changed in synths a lot in the last 10 years. And it used to be that synths, um, you had to go to a studio to get them and they only had to be vintage. But now everyone, all the manufacturers are making them and reissuing them, and a lot of artists have since. Um, and uh, so that's that's one thing that has changed in the last 10 years. When I worked at DFA, I mean, people would come just to record since. And sometimes that happens. Um, now it's more like there are producer tools for me. And I have my five six synths that I use very carefully and do very specific things with. And I try to limit it to that. Are you willing to name them or are you, is it a secretive thing? I can name a few. Sure. Okay. I mean, the, the Juno 106 is probably the most used synth. Um, SH-101 still. Uh, you know, the Moog, Moog Model D, Jupiter, MS-20. Those would probably be and, the top five. And the ones that you are not naming... Yeah. Why are you not naming them? Maybe because I'm their foster parent. <laughs> and I don't want to, uh, they might disappear on it any day right now. So I'm, uh, I'm foster parenting a CS80, which is great. And I'm going to use it a lot, but it could disappear at any day. Is that, um, is that a thing in the past where people won't say what they use? Is, is knowledge so readily available and you could kind of reverse engineer what a sound is? Or is that just not a thing anymore i mean i think it varies person to person you know it's like i mean i know you know i just referencing james murphy for for instance like people would obsess about the drum sound and how mystery it was and then there's a whole article online about every last detail of what he did um and he's willing to share it and i think most people are willing to share um yeah i mean it's it's a tricky thing because it's like it it doesn't and the, the gear and stuff, it really doesn't matter. And sometimes if you're, yeah, so it, it goes either way. I don't really care. I'll tell anyone anything. Do you see yourself more as a, a Sherpa now or a guide to like, hey, I've got this amazing synth and I only know how to use 5% of it and you help them unlock, you know, whatever secrets it might hold? Oh, for sure. Yeah, that definitely, that definitely happens. One of the things that you said to me that was interesting is that you were part of New York City's underground improvised music scene. Yes. How big of a scene is that and who are some of the players in it? Well, it's been... When I first moved to New York City, it was probably my most active time. And that was back in 2001, 2002, when there was... Back when... uh, Well, Tonic was around. I don't know if you remember Tonic. Yes. And And for all of those who don't know what it is, please go read Meet Me in the Bathroom for your slice of early 2000 New York history. Yeah. So there's there's Tonic, there was Zebulon, and I played in various groups, played in a group Troid, played in a group Elliptical Ferns. And um, at at the time, I was doing a lot of sort of hybrid guitar and synth improvisation. Um, And I was also attending the new school for improvisational music at the time Um, and performing with some of my professors and some of my uh, classmates and kind of got derailed for a bit, but um, with studio stuff. And now I've gotten back into it. Um, One of the main people I've been performing with lately is Jason Lindner. Um, He's sort of synth, uh, synth jazz guru, I guess, but he played on the latest Bowie record. Um, and he's been doing a lot more sort of synth improvised music stuff. So, yeah. And the community is strong here, strong elsewhere. And what are some of the venues that you play now? R.I.P. Tonic, R.I.P. Zebula. Yeah, I mean, New Blue is still holding it together in that regards. And Love then, a good New Blue night out. Yeah. And then, I mean, there are, it's, it's more the unconventional places, which I'm trying to think of right now. That it's, it's, it's very interesting to try and find the right spots for the kind of thing this kind of music does so. the, does the room dictate it or is it an acoustic thing is it an audience or what what makes a good 
Well, it propositional can, spot. Well, yeah, the the room can dictate it a little bit because if you know it's a type of place where drinks are being served and and it's Friday at ten o'clock, like yeah, you know maybe I wouldn't play that last piece. Uh, <laughs> might have a kick drum underneath it or something like that to uh, play the room, so to speak. <clears throat> but um, uh, you know, so what makes a good space is is always. I mean, for me at least it's always the sound system it's number one uh and because i'm now old and tired close to my apartment <laughs> just a parameter <laughs> just, a just, a just a parameter <laughs> if you could make it work for me that would be great um one of the, the things i noticed when to bring it back to the record is um on the music tags you have all the things but you also have devotional yeah, <laughs> which I absolutely loved, and uh, obviously a decision. There, there aren't like a thousand tags. There's maybe four or five tags for genres. Yeah, how did how did you l- land there, and how do you see this being used in in that sense of music? Well, it goes uh, when I think about going back to the the the, the solstice and the and the, the point of having music, you know, and and giving people a reason to listen to this. It does sort of start to get slightly religious in a way, and I think that people these days we don't believe in anything anymore. And if, uh, if music could be a religion, that would be a wonderful thing. Um, and if me- people could believe in music and use music as a way of belief and somehow t- tie that into, once again, the connection of nature, um, that would make me very happy. So that's the short answer to that. <laughs> Can we expect more knowing that June 21st is on the horizon? <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. For sure, and I'm not going to even limit it to solstices per se, um, but uh, but yeah, I think June definitely gives me enough time. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, Abe, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can people hear the the record? How can they follow you? Find out where your gigs are. Book some time at Transmitter. Yeah, all these things. I mean, the Instagram seems to be the uh, easiest way to get a hold of me from from any any sort of person. I'm not really on Twitter or Facebook these days. But uh, and then the you know the album's on Bandcamp, it's on Spotify, it's on every every possible digital way to listen to things. And what's its Instagram handle? It's just Abe Seifert. So that's A B E S E I F E R T H. Perfect. We want to thank the Art of Plating for being on the show today. Abe, thank you for coming in. Jeet, we appreciate you as always. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Uh, I would say. What's the name you're going to take us out with? But just just take us out. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.